The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 16 years from today, Greg Gerstner will finally land the perfect cannonball. Epic Splash. Unsuspecting friends. A work of art only possible because Greg is already meeting all these same people at AARP volunteer and community events that keep him active and involved and help make sure his happiness lives as long as he does. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org local. The American Bar Association provides access to career-changing and life-changing opportunities. Invest in your growth, deepen your knowledge, and join us in our pursuit of making a positive impact for all. The American Bar Association. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. This podcast is the latest in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, in which we explore a subject through questions that you've sent in via our social media and popular internet search queries. Today's episode is all about the Renaissance, and I put your questions on everything from everyday life to art, literature and science to Jerry Broughton, Professor of Renaissance Studies at Queen Mary University of London, whose books include The Renaissance, A Very Short Introduction. So I think to start us off on the subject of the Renaissance... We'll start with a few of the most popular search terms from the internet. So when people are going to search engines and asking about the Renaissance, these are the things that they're asking. So first of all, let's go for what was the Renaissance? (laughs) What was the Renaissance? Um, Usually we'd say it's uh, a historical period, usually 1350. Some people start around 1400, ending in around 1600. Those are quite sort of arbitrary terms. Um, We'd sort of say that it's uh, a phenomenon which uh, comes out of Italy uh, in that late 14th, early 15th century moment, um, and that is predominantly a flourishing of the arts, particularly the visual arts, so painting, sculpture, but then also literature. So we could go from the uh, 
Italian artist Giotto um, in the 14th century, right through to Shakespeare, really, at the turn of the 16th, 17th century. Um, It's usually defined as a European phenomenon. Um, That's something that I'm not so sure about. I think we should also think about it as a a global uh, phenomenon. It's not just confined to Europe, but that's traditionally how it's been uh, defined. But it's also more than just a historical idea. It's also a a descriptive term. So Renaissance, the word comes from the French uh, for rebirth. It's a term which is actually only invented in the 19th century. So it's important to say that in the 15th and 16th century, nobody's talking about Renaissance. Um, It's invented by male, white historians in the 19th century. And Renaissance is from the French, which means rebirth. So it's the rebirth of classical civilization. And that's also seen as a key element of what the Renaissance is. Different from the medieval period, there's a new fascination and investment uh, in classical studies uh, of art and literature and language. Um, So that's really what the term means. But it's important to know that another term which could be used is also the early modern. So um, the early modern is synonymous with Renaissance. Um, And that's a term that a lot of historians will now use for exactly the same period. Um, And there tends to be a bit more, I think, of a sort of stuffy traditional idea about Renaissance, whereas early modern is a bit sort of a bit sexier in a way. Uh, But the two terms are actually interchangeable. So it's worth knowing that that, uh, that's where the term comes from. But the historians are also using early modern. But don't be confused. It often means Renaissance as well. But what you've done there is a very good job of ticking off several of my next questions. So in that case, let's go into a question from Hotspur Sam on Twitter, which is what kickstarted the Renaissance and why? I think, again, there are various issues. I don't think there's any one thing. Traditionally, one argument is that it's the recovery of these classical texts. So it's... uh, often what are called book hunters. So Italian scholars who in the 14th and early 15th century uh, are fascinated to rediscover the classics. So they go into old monasteries, often in Northern Europe, they go off on diplomatic uh, missions um, and they discover texts by Plato, Aristotle, Cicero. It's kind of extraordinary. They bring these texts back, particularly to Florence. And there's a a reinvestment in those ideas. Um, So that's one version, this discovery of ancient texts. I think another version uh, is trade, the fact that you've got this uh, growing international trade, which leads to cross-cultural encounters, which leads to uh, a sort of cross-fertilisation of different ideas. Um, So you've got Venetian trade, which is going into what we would now call the Middle East, and that's leading to new ways of uh, doing business and also developing new ways of uh, calculating stuff. Um, So you get the way in which architecture changes. So this is a a big issue about how Venice, if you look at Venice, you look at the uh, architecture of somewhere like Damascus, they're very similar. Um, You look at the way in which Renaissance bookkeeping develops in this period using Arabic uh, numbers and Arabic ways uh, of doing business. So that kind of cross-fertilisation, again, leads to different changes, leads to different ways of thinking about stuff, just as the books are coming in and also changing. Um, And I think it's also um, about the way in which politics Uh, is changing, especially in Italy. You're getting uh, these small uh, city-states, often led by despots, by tyrants, uh, who are mercenaries, who are developing these courts, and it's very competitive. So they want to hire the best scholars, hire the best artists, because they want to make themselves look good. So it's not 
necessarily a politically progressive thing, but suddenly you get these characters like Alberti or Leonardo or Michelangelo or Cellini, and they're working for these despots, these tyrants, but they're allowed and they're given space to produce the most extraordinary artworks. So there are kind of three or four real areas, I think, where you, you get an absolute change. I think it's important to say that there's not some massive revolution. This is very slow, and there is some idea that somehow, you know, around 1400, Italians wake up and they're in the Renaissance. There, there has been a way in which critics have and historians have talked about that in the past. I think we need to move beyond that and say there are a lot of factors which play into it, but we can identify some quite clearly. So you mentioned there Florence and Venice, and perhaps this slightly ties into what you're saying about the development of city-states, but one of the um, most popular search terms is why did the Renaissance start in Italy specifically? Geography is any place's destiny, and, and Italy is interesting because a lot of the uh, scholarship that's coming in uh, is either books being found to the north of Italy. So Florence is interestingly positioned because you know in sort of central northern Italy you can go north reasonably easily into modern day Germany and France uh, in terms of discovering new texts. Also, it's uh, trading with the east, so. Byzantium is a big deal. So the fall of the Byzantine Empire um, in 1453 to the Turks leads to a mass exodus of scholars, many of whom come to Florence, and they're bringing with them Greek classical learning. So Florence also takes its heritage from Rome. So it has the Latinate tradition, but then it's also being suffused with the Greek tradition, particularly Plato. Um, so platonic thinking comes into Florence. So Florence is sort of positioned in that sort of perfect place, really, um, geographically. There are reasons why really that massive flowering of the arts and culture happens in Florence. Similarly, you could say with Venice as a seaport, which is connected to the east, but less so with its connection to maybe northwestern Europe. So Florence is a kind of hub and, and hubs like that always lead sort of cultural change. And to lead on from that um, geographical aspect, uh, Simone van Schek um, on Twitter asked, how did the influence of the Renaissance differ from country to country? And she says, um, I guess that some countries were more heavily impacted than others. It's a really good question, because I think to just assume that the Renaissance is about Italy um, is inaccurate. So once you start to get all those factors coming together, the sort of rebirth of classical learning, sort of global trade, um, politics changing, there are different manifestations. So we talk a lot about the northern Renaissance as opposed to the Southern Renaissance. And another way of looking at that is what happens south of the Alps and what happens north of the Alps. So, you know, in Germany, you've got people like Albrecht Dürer who are producing the most extraordinary art, which is very different from what's happening um, in Italy. Um, you've got religious differences, because obviously with the development of the Reformation uh, and Luther from the 1520s, which is a cataclysmic change, which also affects art and literature um, in a way that it doesn't in Southern Italy. The development of printing. Printing is very much something that emerges out of Northern Europe, less so in the, in the South. It's not, not completely the case. There's a lot of printing in Italy, but there are very different manifestations of those that kind of flowering. England is a really interesting case because I often argue that classically, England doesn't have a renaissance. Under Henry VIII, there's a buying in of humanist learning and scholars, but not for the sake of learning to 
basically for Henry's case, to try and support his divorce. You don't have the flowering of the arts. You don't have great visual culture. Um, in a way, it's only bought up later by monarchs like Charles I. So England is a very different case. And you could say that almost uh, it's rather lazy to say the English Renaissance, because I'm not so convinced that England is doing what Italy is doing, say, in the late 15th and early 16th century, which is different from Germany and different from France. And even using those descriptors, those national descriptors, is misleading anyway, because we don't have nation states at the time. Italy doesn't exist. We talk about Italy, but we should really talk about the Italian peninsula, because even the sort of manifestations of the Renaissance in Florence are different from Rome and different from Venice and different from Ferrara even, and even smaller city-states, which are developing very specific ways of, of developing learning, of the plastic and visual arts. They're all very different. So once we start to get into this idea about the Renaissance, it quickly becomes a lot of different renaissances. We could even talk about the Ottoman Empire and say that they're affected by this notion of renaissance and change in the arts. So we could go further than Europe as well. So it's a really good question. And I think always really good to specify the area in which you're talking about uh, to then define what you mean by the renaissance. So next, we have a few questions about people's lives in this period. And there are a couple that Actually, I would have asked myself, so Miss HR History asks, how aware were ordinary people of the wider cultural changes? And Sarah Solnit, who was uh, got in touch on Facebook, asked, did people at the time believe that they were in an exciting era and that things were changing? I think those are great questions. And I think that the answer is not as much as we might like to think. Because if you if you look at a lot of the artworks that we celebrate as quintessentially Renaissance, what you might call ordinary or working people, no, wouldn't see uh, many of them. You wouldn't be seeing Holbein's ambassadors because they're they're in courts, right? Uh, levels of literacy are relatively low, um, especially for women, of course. So you're not going to be reading a lot of those texts. You might be being told how religion is changing. But I think this is always a fascinating example of what happens when you get the shift from Catholicism to Protestantism. How much do people understand the detail of that theology? I'm not sure as much as we might have imagined. And again, similarly with the with the issue of the arts. So yeah, I mean, I think there are impacts, but yeah, I think this sense in which people are living through that period, not so much. And don't forget, this is a period which is probably uh, filled with more violence, more warfare than earlier or even later periods. So we think about the Renaissance and we think about, you know, it's golden period and Leonardo and Florence and isn't it all lovely? Not really, because there's both warfare throughout the Italian peninsula and then by the 1520s, Europe itself is burning with the Reformation. People are being, you know, killed for their religious beliefs. So yes, there is a sort of outpouring of, of the arts and of literature, but who gets to see that and how does it affect them? I think, again, a lot of social history has been done really only in the last 14, 50 years, most of it by women. Interestingly, great scholars like Natalie Zeman Davis would say, yes, there are new ideas which are percolating, but there's real conflict around how uh, people use them and, and also new ideas affecting how people should live their lives and causing huge conflict. But also much of that new art particularly being very much for the elite and being consumed by the elite. I think that's a really intriguing point to to mention because a lot of the time when we do these podcasts, what people really want to know about whenever we ask people for questions on social media is 
ordinary people's lives and how ordinary people, as you say in quote marks, lived. So just to follow on from that a bit, Stracy Sal asked what were people's lifestyles like? Just one Iris on Instagram also asked about everyday life in terms of what you could tell us about food, clothing, religion, the types of jobs available at this time. Yeah. And I think again, it's it's both this continuity and change. I think there's change in the sense in which because you've got more global trade, you've got people's uh, diets changing. People are eating different stuff suddenly because from the uh, late 15th, 13th, 16th century, you're suddenly getting an influx of, uh, of new spices that are coming in from the East Indies. That's changing what people are eating, how they're preparing food. Um, it's also affecting drugs and cosmetics. So what people can actually wear. And of course, big issue is about trade in, in cloth. That's a big issue for England. And then and suddenly you're getting people wearing silk. Silk is coming into Europe. Um, it's been there before, but exponentially you've got this massive growth, which is changing. And that's changing, of course, also how people do their jobs. So it's changing the fact that you might have, you might be in a community where suddenly people are saying, hey, I've been traveling to places like North Africa or the Middle East, as we would call it, or even further afield. So it is changing people's understanding of the world around them. And again, that could be seen as better, but also we know in this period that there's also massive inflation. Uh, there's huge instances of plague. The plague, of course, in terms of current issues is, is kind of fascinating because one argument is that the plague of the mid-14th century, which wipes out, decimates Europe, is one issue that some historians think triggers the Renaissance because they need to literally start again from the 1348 Black Death. There's a sense in which everything has been wiped out, everything that you understand has been questioned, and from then, you can perhaps start again. So there is a strong and I think very compelling argument that that's another basis upon which the Renaissance is being driven by those changes. But again, you know, I think that you could go into certain communities and see that people's standards of living had probably dropped in this period. Religious conflict from the 1520s is just is Europe-wide and people are living but also dying for their religious beliefs. And I think that that is a big change. Well, that takes us on very nicely to a question from Luke Brinkhurst, um, who asked, do we have any evidence of people at the time being scared of the coming changes? Absolutely. I mean, I think that there's a there are huge concerns about uh, the way in which technology is changing. Printing is a really interesting one. People are appalled by the idea of printing. Printing appears and people say, well, this is the end of the world. <laughs> and they, they talk about it in ways that are very uh, interestingly relevant to the, the sort of online uh, transformation that we've experienced, I've experienced in my lifetime. You know, I remember a time before email, um, you know, we've lived through this most extraordinary change. Um, and the printing revolution from the late 15th century is similarly one which really freaks people out. They're not sure what it means to suddenly have mass-produced texts. And one argument is that this is, of course, what drives the Reformation. If Luther can utilise a printing press which can circulate his version of the Bible in thousands of copies, that's a massive change. And people are both excited but scared about that. So I think that there is a sense in and, and that it's magical. Something like printing is, is is magic. It's an extraordinary thing. And absolutely, I think the sense in which the discovery of the Americas, or we call in inverted commas, the discovery of Americas, because the people who lived there probably thought that they, they hadn't been discovered. But that in itself is often seen as the shock of the new, the fact that a whole new continent has been discovered 
that's not in the Bible. This te- people say, well, how can, how can God not have talked about the Americas? So these things are massive shocks and I think really make people think again about all forms of religious authority or political authority. So, yeah, absolutely. And, and that goes with a wider sense of, of the world is changing very quickly. And if you think in this period more so, the problems of travel, most people never get beyond their small village and their predominantly agrarian community. Nevertheless, we as historians do keep finding that, oh, yeah, however, people in this place are wearing silk or people in this place are working with printed books. Or there are things that we see that are making those differences. It's it's such a fascinating period of such radical change. And as the question asks, excitement, but also terror, because in a culture, I think, which is so defined by religion, you are really scared about where you're going to end up in the afterlife because it's so powerful for people um, and they want to know whether they're going to be saved or not. Well, picking up on that point about religion, um, Soraya Makeda on Instagram asked, um, how much power did religion have over the masses in this period or did power begin to spread to other aspects of society? I think that I'd agree that it's it's pervasive in this period. I mean, if you think that um, within most Christian communities, if you're fined for not going to church, that you're really defined as an absolute pariah if you're not doing that, if you're not reading your holy texts, whatever they be, whether they're Protestant or Catholic or any other forms, absolutely. And what comes with that is also a sign of the uh, within Europe, the the huge anxieties about other religions and fascination with other religions, with Judaism, uh, with Islam. So there's no doubt this is a culture which is absolutely saturated in questions of religious belief. There's very, very little chatter that we have um, about atheism, for instance. We only get that much later, infamously people like Christopher Marlowe um, accused of atheism. Um, But I think predominantly in this period where you have people who are prepared to die for their religion, for for very specific theological uh, issues, not something great, but whether you believe in a certain form of predestination or another, yeah, not even if you believe in one God or another, but those kind of really fine detailed theological distinctions and you are prepared to be burnt to death for those beliefs gives you a sense that, yes, religion, I think, is absolutely pervasive and central to everything in this period. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess you could say that obviously political elites are still very uh, strategic in terms of how they use religion. So you can see, say, the Portuguese saying uh, that they're traveling to India to take the word of God there. But really, it's about trade and and money and finance. Um, So the rhetoric can be used. But I think in everyday life, there's a sense in which religion is 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 all embracing. I think now is time to move on to the elephant in the room, as in art and art and paintings is one of the biggest things that people search for online. So what would you say are the hallmarks of Renaissance art? And can you give us some examples? And I think a, a big uh, distinction in terms of previous art would be the development of vanishing point perspective. 
Again, this is often seen as something that comes out of Florence, but people like Brunelleschi um, and then subsequent artists, you know, uh, defining the way in which vanishing point perspective works. This is very different from earlier Christian European medieval visual art, and it's very different from other forms of uh, global artistic production. If you look at Islamic art, for instance, it doesn't really use vanishing point perspective. I think that as the development is really, really significant. Can you just explain a tiny bit more about what vanishing point perspective is? So the notion that you can create a, a horizon from which everything recedes from the point at which you stand to uh, a point on the horizon. So you will look at the way in which architectural plans are using that kind of design. And various artists in the late 15th century, uh, people like Fillaret, you can look up these uh, images. If you put in ideal city, you can see these brilliant examples of vanishing point perspective, where they're literally using rulers uh, to develop a point from where you stand, from where you are and then a horizon that you imagine that you have and therefore all points will recede to that vanishing point of a horizon so what you get is therefore that things recede in terms of distance whereas before that of course and quite rightly fair enough you have paintings which show um, for instance if you had an image of the earth and you showed christ christ would be the most important figure so he'd be bigger Mm. Vanishing point perspective, of course, wouldn't show you that. So once you get that sort of development, then you you get increasingly powerful illusionism um, in art. And that's what subsequently Italian artists, of course, manipulate and develop. And you get with Michelangelo or Leonardo playing around with those kind of games. So I think uh, perspective in art is a huge issue. And I think also um, in terms of... Um, the, the kinds of materials, people using um, oil paint. We think of that quintessentially as being what uh, painters use, but it's not. Again, if you look at early painters like Giotto, they're using uh, materials like tempera. It's only later, and actually more in Northern Europe, with people like Jan van Eyck. Van Eyck is using oils. And then Italian painters look at that, and they look at the way in which you can create glaze using oil. Tempera is much flatter. Right, you, you just put it on and it's just one colour. In oil, you can put layer after layer after layer, glazed oil, one colour after another after another, and you get this most beautiful sort of iridescent, translucent effect. And you see that in Jan van Eyck, you see it in artists like Holbein. And Southern Italian artists then developed that in the 16th century. So that's a big difference as well. You've got vanishing point perspective, you've got oil painting, which is being used in incredibly new ways. And so I think those two things are, are massively, massively important. And then I think the other thing I'd add is, is, is an interest in life. We talk about uh, Leonardo and we talk about dissection and the interest in anatomy, and that's a new thing. And of course, it's controversial because the church is not very happy with that. But we now know that all those artists are working from life in a way that previous artistic traditions haven't. People like Benvenuto Cellini is using uh, live uh, female models. That's new. Now we sort of think, oh yeah, female model. It's not at the time. Leonardo is dissecting animals and we believe is probably working with human corpses. And that's again allowing a whole new way of drawing and painting, which is, that is new. This is something different. And that's a 15th and 16th century development. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. If we look at environmental politics, we need to go back hundreds, even thousands of years. Um, and so this is a period where I think it allows us that longer perspective to see how things have changed.
This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Well, working from life leads us on very nicely to a question that I had to include from KB the Ginger, which is why are there so many nude people in the Renaissance paintings? Another great question, which I guess I guess has a, a, a sort of uh, an academic answer, which is there's a return to the classics. So uh, classical Greek or Roman statuary is often, of course, naked. So it's an emulation. But alongside that, you know, we forget that there's a massive erotic power, um, which is often uh, sidelines. There's you know, a recent show of Titian's at the National Gallery um, showing his erotic paintings. And we look at them and we talk about his kind of classical fascination with the past and, you know, stories from Ovid. What people don't often say is that they were commissioned by Philip II as dirty paintings for his bedroom. That's just a fact. It's not just me being sort of, you know, whatever, modish about it. It's there in all the documentation. Uh, so we know that a lot of the artists were, of course, using this fascination with the nude because there was a certain sexual dimension to that, of course, for men and women. Often, of course, the statuary uh, is female, so there's an investment in the sort of sexualization of the woman's body. But also, of course, you know, you can look at a lot of the, the way in which there's a homoerotic dimension to a lot of uh, male naked statuary as well. Michelangelo's David, most famously. Um, you look next to him in, in the in the square in Florence, you've got uh, Benvenuto Cellini's uh, Perseus and Medusa, a very beautiful young boy killing a naked woman. Now, a lot of that is about, yes, the fascination with the, with the human form, but it's also about injecting it with a certain level of eroticism, which this comes back to a lot of the conversations that we've been having, really, that politically people can support that so if you're the medici you're quite happy with that happening if you're a member of the church you're probably a bit more worried about that so these are the collisions that happen so behind the question you know why is it there um i think 
are both classical answers, academic answers, but also more human uh, erotic answers. And the other important thing to say is, that, of course, most in fact, you know, 99% of the people we're talking about are male artists and it's about male patronage. So it's about objectifying women or celebrating the male body, whether that's, you know, eroticized or not. So always bear that in mind. You know, the nude is, is highly gendered. It's always been so. Um, and, you know, we're now questioning it quite rightly. Um, but we don't have many examples of women speaking back to that. Artemisia Gentileschi is a, is, is a good uh, counterexample to that. We'll we'll come on to um, women in a little bit, hopefully. But I might ask you next about um, literature. So Soraya Makeda also asked about what are some of the most notable literary works of the Renaissance period? Well, this is an interesting question because we talk so much about Italy um, in the 14th and 15th and even 16th century, but we don't talk much about its literature. So there is an interesting distinction which goes back to where we talk about the Renaissance happening. So I mean, it's not totally true. We could talk about Petrarch, uh, you know, early Italian uh, poet who develops the sonnet tradition. Uh, we could talk about uh, epic writers like Ariosto um, coming out of Italy, but Predominantly, then we move north and we do talk about a later English tradition. Um, Shakespeare is interesting because I always think Shakespeare is, is at the very end, if not sort of beyond a certain classical definition of the Renaissance. But we would look, I guess, to, uh, to England and we think about that tradition. But it's very late. Classically, if we're talking about the Renaissance as sort of roughly 1400 to 1600, then Elizabethan uh, Jacobean poetry and drama is right at the end of that. You know? The Elizabethan stage really only gets going in 1580, um, so over by 1603 when Elizabeth is dead. Um, so the, the literature is really difficult because also we don't pin it back always to literature. So if we think of other great writers of this period, like Montaigne, or Erasmus, these humanist writers, they're not writing what we would now call literature, even fiction. So we want to be really careful when we talk about literature in this period. So we have an idea of literature with a big L, you know, that it's about fiction, it's about poetry, it's about drama, it's about the novel. Well, the novel, of course, didn't exist then, not really. I mean, you have people who tell stories, but then it's not really as we would understand the definition now. Poetry, yes, and that does come out of a certain Italian tradition, um, and it gets into the English tradition. So people like Marlowe and Shakespeare know all the high Italian Renaissance tradition of people like Petrarch, um, but it becomes very much about the vernacular, the spoken language of the people. Um, and I think that that's one point where the Renaissance then, as it were, starts to end, really, once you start talking about the European vernacular languages and people writing literature in those vernacular languages, then things move from the, really from the late 16th, early 17th century. So that's a kind of, it, it's a difficult one to talk about, uh, you know, Renaissance literature. I teach a module at my university on Renaissance literature. And the first thing I say is there's no such thing as Renaissance literature. <laughs> uh, and let's start with that, because what do we mean by that? We can talk about modern and modernist fiction, but talking about Renaissance literature, where are you going to start? Do you want to start by reading 
Thomas More's Utopia? Well, you know, it's in Latin and it seems to be as much an educational treatise as a piece of fiction. Do you want to look at Erasmus's Praise of Folly? Well, you know, Erasmus is writing all these humanist textbooks again for students and also he's writing self-help books for princes. So is that literature? Yeah, I'm happy to call it so. We can't really talk about a reading public as much in this period either. Because uh, again, we're back to those questions about literacy and also how these books are being circulated in print. Yes, sometimes, but again, printed texts, you know, are not massively in circulation. Print runs of a thousand. It's not, it's not getting out to many people really, is it? Um, so it's a really interesting area, which is why um, so many people are fascinated now by book history as much about how are books made? How do they circulate? Before we then just say, how do we read them? As well as the written word, Soraya Makeda also asked about science and asked about what some of the greatest advancements or discoveries in science were in this period. I think that that's another, obviously, it's a great question because I think we spend too much time talking about science in this period when we should be talking about the later 17th century when we talk about the scientific revolution. Um, So actually, science works in very different ways. It's uh, it's developed through all kinds of different areas. Um, Often we're now discovering there's a lot of interesting what we would today call science um, in, for instance, uh, domestic uh, accounts of recipes, women making stuff and suddenly saying, well, if you mix this with this, you get that. Now, we've tended to sort of be so gendered in our accounts of that that we've missed that. So there's now a lot of interesting stuff about uh, sort of gendered accounts of early uh, scientific discovery. That tends to go alongside the more obvious ones, which are, I guess, uh, I mean, two key moments I'd pick out would be uh, Vesalius. So Vesalius in fifteen uh, in the 1540s is uh, writing texts about uh, anatomy and the body. So you're getting a development of uh, a medical scientific interest in the body. Um, and Copernicus in 1543, who uh, radically says, oh, actually, you know, through my astronomical observations, let me tell you that the Earth is not the centre of the universe, but that actually we're in a solar system and the Earth revolves around the sun. My goodness, that's a kind of completely radical shift, as really is Vesalius. But what's interesting about those scientific developments is they go virtually nowhere. Nobody picks up on them. So when we talk about science, we can look at uh, those kind of developments uh, in scientific innovation. But both uh, Vesalius uh, and certainly Copernicus were effectively sat on. They didn't lead to a lot of scientific uh, follow through and innovation. Uh, Galileo, famously again in the early 17th century, Galileo's uh, reproducing Copernicus's ideas, very radical and very brilliant uh, scientific methodology developed by Galileo. And infamously, as we know, uh, the church sits on it. So there are scientific innovations, but a lot of them don't lead to, as it were, on the ground uh, follow through. Um, and really, it's it's a lot of those hit and miss uh, processes, which then lead to a sort of more experimental methodology that you get with Francis Bacon uh, in England saying, look, you need to do trial and error. Science is about testing things. Um, and I think if there's any point where I, w- I would say that the Renaissance kind of ends, I would say it's with Bacon's theory about scientific methodology, really in the 1620s, with his New Atlantis and other scientific texts. And that says we actually break with 
uh, an obsession with the classical past because those texts don't work anymore and we got to move on. So although it's not about sign any specific tangible scientific discovery that Bacon makes, it's about that methodology. And the Renaissance does produce that finally. It's it's what brings it to an end to some extent. What's really intriguing about all of those things you've spoken about, the art, the literature and the sciences, that it seems that a lot of the things that we think of now as really groundbreaking weren't necessarily communicated in the period. So it's more retrospective that they, they seem groundbreaking than at the time. Would that be fair? I think that that's absolutely right, that because we have such an investment one of the issues here is this massive, massive investment in the Renaissance. So we have to say, what were the great scientific breakthroughs? Um, as you were saying, I think there's a very retrospective desire to sort of find those things and say, yeah, this is really radical and different. I, I think that because of the way in which the ideas were uh, challenging, there were limitations to them. There were also limitations to how they were circulated, often in manuscript form, because of course in this period, uh, still to, it was seen as rather vulgar to print your stuff. You know, it, you, you circulated it amongst like-minded men. Um, so I think it is retrospective and it's more of a sort of theoretical shift that takes place. And back to what you were asking earlier, yes, I think in a about the way in which religion perhaps starts to be challenged, I think slowly, increasingly, yes, that does happen. Um, so you do get Bacon saying, I'm not so sure about the classics anymore. We're kind of now a bit stuck being sort of slavishly reproducing them. Uh, and now you've got a sort of discovery of the new world and everything that comes with that. Mm, I'm not sure about Genesis. Is Is the Bible really quite quite spot on there and so gradually you get people almost whispering i'm not sure whether this orthodoxy is right anymore so i think you're absolutely right it's there's a huge retrospective problem about bigging up what happens at that point in the period um you know copernicus produces his text sort of absolutely revolutionary and then sort of goes never mind forget about it now <laughs> <laughs> and it takes another hundred years or more uh, for that to really become a, 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 a more accepted as an orthodoxy. Um, so after some lovely considered in-depth discussion here, I'm going to ask you for a relatively quick fire question. Benjamin Thrussell asked, who would you say are the five most influential Renaissance figures? I mean, I think you, you would go back to some of the great uh, Italian figures, you know, Leonardo, Michelangelo. Uh, I would pick, you know, Northern Italian artists like Holbein. Um, I would say that Shakespeare comes at the end of a certain tradition of the Renaissance. And I would say uh, Petrarch as well. In terms of the arts, if we're looking at uh, the arts, those would be sort of five key figures. So I've put my, put my head on the block and given you those five figures. And so we mentioned this a tiny bit earlier, but to return to it, um, Kelsey um, Spears Johnson on Twitter asked about who were some of the most influential women specifically of the Renaissance. So I think what's really exciting is Artemisia Gentileschi, who um, was a, a painter whose uh, work has just been shown at the National Gallery, um, has suddenly been sort of rediscovered um, as a figure at the heart of, uh, of the high Renaissance, at the end of the Renaissance, she's sort of early 17th century. And I think that that's kind of really important to say that uh, yeah, she, she's been completely neglected and she was innovative uh, in painting, absolutely crucial. So 
the way in which social history is starting to rediscover and sort of redefine women in the period, I think, is is really obviously important. It's the kind of work that, uh, as well as sort of cultural exchange, we should be sort of supporting and encouraging. Um, for me, it's other, other people like Isabella Deste. Isabella Deste was a, a great patron of the arts, uh, based predominantly in Mantua. Um, she's somebody who always kind of interests me. And again, you forget that you need the patrons to create the art. And it's often people like her who almost accidentally, again, it's through marriage or issues that accidentally put her in a position of power that then she can use that power uh, for various different ends. And, you know, then I think you'd look at Elizabeth first. I mean, Elizabeth is, again, is a, is a classic example of just by uh, a sort of hereditary accident. She ends up running the country. Nobody ever wanted that really in power. But what then happens is a fascinating change in terms of how politics operates. Uh, it, it changes everything. Um, and I think it changes everything partly because of her gender. So those are kind of three people that I would choose, three women who I think are both already known about. But increasingly, we talk about other people in our specific areas, you know, somebody like uh, Mary Sidney, Philip Sidney's uh, sister, uh, a fascinating woman who translates the Psalms. He's a great writer. Um, we've usually just dismissed her because she's just Philip Sidney's sister. But actually, now, read on her own terms, she seems to be somebody who's probably as important as... Philip, if not more so. So I think increasingly what we're doing is is recovering those uh, those women's voices and how they operate in a different way to men. You know, there is a lot of women's writing in this period. We've just ignored it, and it's a really it's a really interesting and almost slightly contentious area because um, as a blow to sort of say actually. Um, yes, of course, it was a patriarchal society and it was riddled with misogyny. However women's voices were heard, it was hard for them and they had to struggle to, to, to operate within institutions which were always already male-dominated, um, is a tricky one because you don't want to, as it were, not say this is still very much a male-dominated society, but you also don't want to just give it up to the men, as it were. It's, it's really important around uh, research, and I guess it's as historians what we're really excited about doing, which is just sort of saying... Uh, question the orthodoxies, question the sort of racial, religious or gendered orthodoxies of your historical period. Don't just assume that, you know, there are no women there. Don't just assume that there are no Jews there. They usually, if you ask different questions, you'll find different answers. And I think that that's been the case in, in uh, the history, in women's history, led by as I say, a lot of great uh, women historians, people like Natalie Zemmendavis, one of my great heroes. Um, but that affects everything because it changes the way in which you look at the whole period. If you put something like Artemisia back into the story of early 17th century Italian painting and Caravaggio and Rubens and other artists, everything looks different. And that's what's really important about it, both saying, yes, she's there. And also, however, let's not just bang on about her being a woman. How do we move on from that and just take her as an artist in her own rights? And to bring us to a conclusion, um, I've got one final question that people have searched for online, which is a big one, but a good one to end on, I think. Why did the Renaissance matter? Which is essentially questioning your entire career. <laughs> <laughs> um, Obviously, yeah, it's, it is the big question. I guess I go back to one of the, the first answers I gave about that the Renaissance can also be known as the early modern. 
So for me, Renaissance, if it means the rebirth if it, of classical culture, that's a way of looking back. I'm fascinated always by the period because I also like using the term early modern. And when I say that, I mean what we see is the beginnings of our own modernity in this period. So when we look at uh, a Holbein painting um, of uh, a merchant, we see a version of how uh, identity begins to work that's recognisably modern to us. When we read Hamlet, we see a figure who's sort of struggling with his sense of who he is that is recognisably modern. It's not completely modern. It's an early manifestation of that. And that's why I'm always fascinated by this period, because I think it helps us understand where we've come from. Now, everybody can say that, I think, actually, in their historical period. But the Renaissance, based on all the things that we've been saying, I think is a period that looks more recognisably familiar and modern to us than the medieval period does. We begin to see things, trade, uh, religious conflict, gendered identity, which are recognisable to us. I would hate to go back and live in 1500. I think it'd be awful. <laughs> I think it'd be awful for, for me, unless you're an elite person. I think you're probably going to have a hard time. However, I do think that it, it, it gives you the seeds, especially in the long durée. At the moment, history is going back to this sort of issue of big history. Yeah? If we look at environmental politics, we need to go back hundreds, even thousands of years. Um, and so this is a period where I think it allows us that longer perspective to see how things have changed and how they can change in the future as well. So that's, for me, why the Renaissance matters. And in that way, I would argue with other people from other periods that it is actually more important. But that's, of course, what I would do, because, as you say, that's, that's, my, that's my livelihood. That was Jerry Brotton. His most recent book, This Orient Isle, Elizabethan England and the Islamic World, is published by Viking. If you want to submit questions for future episodes of our Everything You Wanted to Know series, on Facebook and Twitter at History Extra. You'll see the call-outs for questions pop up there. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for an episode on Doomsday Book. (laughs) 